Up until this point in the book of Ruth, we've seen a number of things. We have seen a man named Elimelech during the midst of a famine in Bethlehem, walking out on God's people and walking out on God's purposes and moving his family to pagan Moab, where eventually he and his sons died. And then we saw Elimelech's widow, Naomi, and one of his daughters-in-law, Ruth, returning not only to the land of Israel, but to the God of Israel, trusting him once more as God and as provider. And we've seen then also God showing himself strong as their God and their provider through the generosity of one of his choice servants, a man named Boaz, who happened to be one of Naomi's relatives and who happened to be an eligible bachelor as well. Maybe even one who could take Ruth into his house and marry her and provide for her and Naomi all the security that as widows they were desperately in need of. And then at the end of chapter 2, with that thought in mind, we saw the wheels begin to turn in Naomi's head. Her motherly matchmaking instincts were begin to rise to the surface. And as a result of that, we now read chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. And he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. It's an interesting story. It reminds me of a book uh, that Joshua Harris wrote in 1997. Some of you have seen it. It became a very popular and I think helpful book entitled, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. That book was a celebration of courtship 
uh, which is a method of finding a spouse that's decidedly more cautious than typical American dating usually is. The idea of the book is to slow down the emotional and often physical entanglements that dating engenders and to prevent young people from giving themselves to one another prematurely. And I recommend the book to those of you who aren't yet married and to those of you who are and who have children that you want to guide in the best way possible. It's called, again, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. But I think of it this morning, and I mention it this morning, not only because I think it would be helpful to you, but because the title of the book helps point out a strange irony here in Ruth chapter 3. For very different reasons and in very, very different ways, we find Naomi in the first four or five verses of this chapter urging her daughter-in-law to kiss dating goodbye. Not exactly in the way that Josh Harris planned it. But Naomi seems, doesn't she, to throw out all the conventional ways of seeking for a husband, for a daughter-in-law, doesn't she? She doesn't suggest courtship or a formal arranged marriage of any sort or even what we would call a dating relationship. She just says, skip over all that, Ruth. Just get your dress on, darling, and sprinkle on some lovely perfume and sneak up to Boaz's bedside in the middle of the night and see what happens. Certainly not the method of seeking a godly husband that any of us would want to employ, but that's what she does, isn't it? And it's a a bizarre twist in this story. So far, this story has unfolded as a romantic and yet pure love story. And now Naomi comes across a bit like Mrs. Bennett, you know, the flighty, ridiculous mother in Jane Austen's famous book, Pride and Prejudice. Naomi is now the desperate all too eager, all too improper, matchmaking mother, willing to make a fool out of herself and out of her daughter-in-law if she just might arrange for her a propitious marriage with an agreeable man. And it's a wonder as you read this story that Boaz, the older, prosperous, godly man that he was, did not, like Mr. Darcy, simply reject Ruth and Naomi out of hand. It's a good thing for Naomi that God was at work here. And God was at work, wasn't he, to bring Ruth and Boaz together? The narrator hinted at that at the end of chapter 2. And Naomi obviously had an idea of where God's providence was leading as well. The wheels had already begun to turn, you remember, at the end of chapter 2. And because they had, because she seemed to already see what God was up to, some commentators argue that Naomi's actions in these first few verses of chapter 3 weren't really improper at all. After all, she had seen what God was apparently doing, and by pushing the door just a little further ajar, they say she was actually acting out of faith. Besides, one commentator argues, we don't know a great deal about the customs of the Israelites during the days when the judges governed, the days when this book took place. So he says, how do we know that Naomi's way of getting a husband for Ruth wasn't simply the normal custom when a woman found herself with no father to help her arrange a good marriage? I don't buy that line of reasoning. For if walking up to a man's bedside in the middle of the night wearing perfume and a nice dress was the normal custom for finding a husband in that day, why did Naomi have to encourage Ruth to make her way to the threshing floor secretly in verse 3? And why was Boaz concerned in verse 14 that no one know that Ruth had spent the night in his harvest time sleeping quarters? You see? Even if we know little or nothing about 
Israelite courtship customs during the days when the judges governed, we have evidence within this very story itself that the two Israelites in the story, namely Naomi and Boaz, both knew that what Naomi was doing was certainly not according to custom and that it was indeed not a little risque. And besides, we do know at least one thing about Israelite custom during the days when the judges governed from the book of Judges. Everyone during those days, we're told, did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17 and Judges 21. And Naomi's scheme, it seems to me, fits that bill quite well. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God was indeed at work to bring Ruth and Boaz together. And Naomi, it would seem, rightly interpreted what God was up to. So in other words, Naomi is not here taking matters into her own hands quite the same way that her husband had in chapter 1. He had taken matters into his own hands. He had left the land of Israel against God's wisdom. He had taken these things into his own hands because he did not like God's plan. But Naomi loves God's plan. Naomi is thrilled at the thought of Ruth and Boaz being united in holy matrimony. So she was not like her husband trying to work against God. She was trying to work with God. But the problem then was not with Naomi's motives. It was with Naomi's methods. She wanted what God wanted. But her method of getting what God wanted was wrong. She was trying to help God out, speed up the wheels on the train of providence to hurry up God's plan just a little bit. And when we see her now in chapter 3, she's no longer acting purely out of faith. She is now trying to see God's will done in a way that is quite different from what she's been experiencing so far in the first two chapters of this book. Do you remember how God's provided so far? Do you remember how she had left the land of Moaz in chapter, Boaz in chapter 1, excuse me, Moab, I'm, I'm getting my, my words confused here, sorry. She left the land of Moab in chapter 1 and come back to Bethlehem with nothing in her hands and totally unsure of how she was going to provide for herself and her daughter-in-law. And yet she went anyway. And that, it seems to me, is the high point of Naomi's faith. That's where her trust in the Lord is most evident. When she doesn't have a plan, when She didn't know what God was going to do or how he was going to do it, but she trusted him enough to go back with no plans and no prospects. And the Lord provided for her, didn't he? He gave them abundant food on the very first day back and not through any cleverly devised scheme that Naomi could come up with. Remember? Ruth, in chapter 2, verse 1, just went out hoping to find grain somewhere to bring home. She didn't know where she was going to go. She didn't know who to ask. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 3, that she just happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Or as we're beginning to see, God guided her steps into the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. God, throughout this story, has given to Ruth and Naomi so much of what they need, even though they had absolutely no plans and no formulas and no ideas for how they were going to make it happen. And yet now, after seeing all of that, Naomi begins to scheme. She begins to come up with plans and formulas and ideas, the kinds of things that God has worked so marvelously without. And not only does she begin to scheme here, but she begins to scheme something that seems so contrary to all the rules of propriety. Now again, remember, Naomi is not abandoning God. She's not shaking her fist in God's face. She sees what God is up to and she loves it. But she's in a hurry. 
And she presumes that God is not acting as quickly as perhaps he should. And perhaps he needs a little help from an eager mother-in-law. So I said it wasn't her motive that was wrong. It was her method of achieving what God desired. And isn't that often the case with you and with me? So often we want the right thing. We really do. We want to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. But God's will sometimes is not done on earth as quickly as we think it should be. Or sometimes God doesn't take the same route getting from point A to point B that we would have taken. And so we get it in our heads that perhaps we need to help the process along a little bit. We need to throw our suggestions into the comment box. And perhaps we need to come up not with a totally different plan from God's, but a way of getting there, a way of accomplishing God's goals that will be a little bit faster than is common when we simply allow the Holy Spirit to work. And that was Naomi. And that is often us. Now it can happen, of course, in just the same set of circumstances as it did in Naomi's life with this whole issue of male and female relationships. Maybe we've met the person that we believe God wants us to marry and many times maybe we're right about what God wants and yet often isn't it true that young people, even Christian young people, rush into the emotional and physical aspects of this marriage relationship before it's actually time. We speed up God's plan for us thinking that our love for one another cannot wait for God's timing. And sometimes it happens in the realm of possessions as well. Have you ever felt like God wanted you to have something? You really wanted it and you prayed about it and you felt like God was saying, yes, that's, that's a good thing for you to have. Maybe it was a car. Maybe it was a computer or a house or a motorcycle or whatever it may be for you. Something small, something big. And you prayed about it and you felt sure God is saying this would be an okay thing, a good thing for me to have. But you never prayed about how he might provide it and when. In other words, you thought that God's willing you to have it was the same as God's willing you to have it today. So you got up off your knees with your credit card in your hand and you rushed out to the store and made sure you did not come home empty-handed. And then two weeks later, whatever it was went on sale for 50% off. Or God sent someone to give it to you for nothing. I'm sure you can all think of times when you had a plan. Maybe it was in the realm of your career or your finances or your schooling or in a dozen other areas. And it seemed at the time as though waiting and doing what Naomi doesn't do, which is, God, I see this happening and will you please make it happen? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. I'm going to watch. It seemed like that just wasn't quite the thing to do. It seemed like it was a little more expedient just to go through with your plan than to wait for the way God appeared to be working things out. You wanted the same thing that God ended up wanting for you, it's true, but you weren't quite willing to wait for it or to get it by the appropriate means. And in fact, I just wonder if some of you might be in the process even now trying to hurry God up or do His thinking for you. Think about it, are you? Have you already begun to lean into a jump that God has not yet told you to make? Or maybe you've already jumped and now you wish you'd waited and done it God's way or in God's timing. Whatever the situation is, even if your motives are right, the methods that we often employ in the assumption that God needs our help are always wrong. Now, perhaps the most important example I could give along these lines is in the area of evangelism. 
when we're sharing the gospel, we want what God wants, don't we? We want our friends to, to come to know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. We want to see them trust in Him alone as their eternal hope. We want what God wants. But God doesn't often bring people to Himself as quickly as we would like, does He? And so we humans, especially we Baptists, and I say that as an insider, have come up with all sorts of ways to help God out in bringing people to Himself. We've invented the repeat after me prayer. We've invented the decision card. If you just sign this, then you've been born again and you have eternal life. We've invented the altar call where being converted and repenting and believing in Jesus is equated with just shaking the pastor's hand at the end of the service. All sorts of things that aren't found in the Bible. And we're doing them all with good motives, but they're bad methods. We're attempting to squeeze into five minutes what God often in his far wiser ways spreads out over a period of five years or even five decades. Now, don't miss my point. I'm not calling for us to to be totally inactive. I'm not saying, in other words, we should lie on the couch and wait for God to go out and share the gospel for us. That's not what I'm saying. There are certain things that God will call us to do as part of His plan, whether it's filling out job applications or asking the girl's father for her hand in marriage or researching the new car on the Internet or sharing the good news of Jesus. There are things that God calls us to do working with Him. There are plenty of initiatives for us to take in participation with God's plans. But let's make sure that our initiatives are in participation with God's plans and not merely part of our own plans. Let's learn from Naomi that we do not need to rush God. Let's remember that He doesn't need our advice in making the world go round. He invites our participation, but He does not need our help. But do you know what's amazing in this story? Even in the midst of all of Naomi's fidgeting and running ahead, and thinking that she knows better than providence. And in the midst of all our fidgeting and running ahead and thinking that we know better than providence, God still sometimes blesses us beyond our wildest imaginations, doesn't He? And sometimes, we'll see in this story, in spite of our foolishness, in spite of our momentary lapses of faith, but not excusing them, God even folds our cockamamie schemes into His good plans, doesn't He? That's precisely what happened with this bizarre plan that Naomi hatched in chapter 3. She should never have done what she did. But as we should now observe in verses 6 and following, God in His mercy worked all things for good anyway. Why did Ruth, beginning in verse 6, go along with Naomi's strange and questionable plans? Well, It's possible that being a new believer who had lived her whole life in a pagan atmosphere, Ruth was not quite sure if Naomi's plan was a godly one or not. Or didn't quite see yet how bad things actually could have turned out. Or it's possible that Ruth knew that Naomi's plan was a little bit seedy and yet she felt obligated by family pressure to go along at least as far as she could. We don't know why Ruth agreed with her mother-in-law, but whatever the case, we do know that when she actually got to the threshing floor that night, Ruth did not make use of the lateness of the hour and the smell of the perfume and the seclusion of the location the way many women would have and perhaps the way Naomi intended for her to do. Did you notice that? 
Ruth, yes, obeys her mother-in-law. She dresses, she puts on perfume, she goes to the threshing floor in verse 6. Yes, she uncovers Boaz's feet in verse 7, probably so they'll get cold and he will wake up in the night. But when he wakes up in verse 8, she does not play the part of the seductress or even the flirt. She does not do what Naomi apparently expected her to do. What she does instead in verse 9 is to tell Boaz exactly why she's there. Because she wants to become his wife. She wants to be loved and cared for by him. That's what that saying there at the end of verse 9 is all about. That's what she meant when she asked him to spread his covering over her. That's an Old Testament way of describing marriage. You can see that in Ezekiel chapter 16. The man's covering or his skirt or his cloak as it's sometimes transferred, translated was a symbol of his commitment to protect and to care for and to love his bride. And that's exactly what Ruth was proposing to Boaz. She's saying to him in verse 9, in essence, would you make me your bride? Would you take me in and care for me and love me and protect me? Would you continue, in other words, to do for me as long as we both shall live all the kindness that you did for me during the barley harvest? Would you continue to take care of me? That's what she's asking. Now, yes, it was a rather unexpected proposal since it came from a woman and since she was far younger, verse 10, and far poorer than the man to whom she was proposing. So it was an odd proposal, but I want you to notice that it was a straightforward and honest proposal. And I say again that this straightforward, honorable approach from Ruth to Boaz was likely very different from the way Naomi expected Ruth to behave. I don't know that Naomi necessarily expected Ruth to go all the way and act with Boaz like a common prostitute. I highly doubt that she expected her to go that far. To go that far would surely have elicited Boaz shooing her out of the threshing floor and having nothing more to do with her. So I don't think... I don't think Naomi is telling her to be a a prostitute. I think she's just telling her to be a seductress and a flirt. Because it does seem, doesn't it, given the lateness of the hour and the secrecy of the meeting and the smell of the perfume, that Naomi did expect Ruth to play the game that young men and women often play. She expected Ruth to try to win Boaz over with her smile and her looks and her charm and her smooth talk. But when she gets there, Ruth isn't very smooth, is she? She practically blurts out the real reason why she's come. There's no, there's no moves. There's no flirtation. As soon as he wakes up, she says, you've been so good to me. And if we were married, we could just continue that way, couldn't we? I mean, it's really, it's really quite striking and I think innocent on Ruth's part. And I find her innocence and her forthrightness and the purity of her motives a refreshing example. Surely Naomi's plan made more worldly sense. I mean, how else are you supposed to attract a man than with a nice dress and a pretty smile and some perfume and some late evenings together? But Ruth wasn't interested in the way the world does things. She wasn't trying, like many American teenage girls are taught to do, to push the envelope of propriety and be part nice girl but part flirt and occasional seductress in order to find a man. That's not what's going on here. Ruth was not going to join in that dance. And so as soon as Boaz woke up, she quit her mother-in-law's facade and she simply talked to Boaz like the honest man that he was. And in the process, 
she set for us an example just the opposite of the one we were noticing with Naomi. Both of these women desperately wanted this marriage to take place. And Naomi did things the way that normal people would do them, the way the world would do them. But Ruth, even though she was a new believer, walked a higher ground. She was not going to seduce Boaz. She rather told him plainly of her appreciation for the kind of man he was and her desire to spend her life with him. And there's a difference between Naomi and between Ruth, isn't there? It's the difference, incidentally, that Joshua Harris was writing about in I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He urges Christians to stop trying to find their mates the way the world does, with late-night encounters and perfume and secluded locations, because he knows that unless one has the constancy of a Ruth or a Boaz, those kind of encounters almost always lead to trouble. And because he knows with Boaz in verse 14 that even if nothing happens in the back seat of the car or in the off-campus apartment, Tongues will wag nonetheless because a woman came to the man's place at a time when she shouldn't have been there. Reputations will be sullied if there is even a hint of immorality. So in essence, Harris is saying, and Ruth, by her example, is saying, why not rather be attracted by character than caresses? Why not see a potential mate in the light of biblical expectations rather than the dimly lit lamplight of a late night living room in someone's apartment? Why not be attracted by the aroma of Christ in her soul rather than the aroma of perfume in her blouse? That's the example that Ruth is setting for us. Ruth's about face on the threshing floor that night practically shouts out to us, not just in the area of courtship, but in every area of life. Just do things the right way. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks you should do. Just do things the right way. In every area of life, yes, the world's methods in finding a mate or in securing a business deal or in saving money or in making the grade or in a hundred other ways, yes, the world's methods seem almost always to be more expedient than God's ways. Yes, the world's methods usually bring more rapid returns than doing things God's way. And yes, many of the people who use the world's methods seem never to get caught and to live their whole lives far higher on the hog than any of us ever will. But the Lord sees. The Lord sees Ruth in the threshing floor going against her mother-in-law's worldly counsel. And the Lord promises in 1 Samuel 2 verse 30 that He honors those who honor Him. So will you honor Him? Wherever in your life the pressure to fudge may be, will you honor the Lord? When the world, like so many Naomi, seems almost to push you into doing things the expedient way rather than the honest, honorable, pure way, will you be like Ruth? Will you simply do things the right way? We mentioned that God worked and blessed in spite of Naomi's shady dealings, and that's true, and we thank Him for His mercy. But we should notice as well that had Ruth gone all the way through with what was expected of her, had she come to Boaz as Ruth the flirtatious party girl rather than Ruth the humble godly widow, it's highly likely that Boaz would have flushed her out of the room. Because you noticed, didn't you, that he responded to her proposal, we're told in verses 10 and 11, not because she looked smashing in her new dress, And certainly not because she blew kisses at him in the moonlight. Why did he respond to her proposal? 
But it wasn't any of the things that Naomi thought. It was because Ruth was a woman of excellence. Verse 11. Boaz responded to Ruth's integrity as any worthy potential husband would. And more than that, God honored Ruth's integrity. God did not allow Ruth's going against the world's methods to handicap her. And he will similarly honor you if you honor him. And in thinking about integrity and honoring the Lord, Boaz continues to impress, doesn't he? Just as Ruth could have approached this late night meeting far differently than she did, Boaz could have responded far differently than he did. It's obvious from his words that he was taken with this younger, virtuous woman. And the hour was late. And the moonlight was above their heads. And no one knew that Ruth had come up to the threshing floor that night. And for many people in America today and in ancient Israel, that would have been enough. How tempting must it have been for a bachelor like Boaz? How easy for him to have taken advantage of the situation, to preempt God's timing, to let loose his passions right then and there, especially given Ruth's great need of him. He could have taken advantage of the situation, but he showed restraint. He walked in integrity and purity and even thought at the end of verse 14 to protect protect Ruth's reputation as well. And once again in verses 15 and 17, we show him showing See him showing Ruth and Naomi tremendous generosity. And did you notice that Boaz's restraint extended not only to sexual purity that night on the threshing floor, but also to the rules of the culture regarding marriage and engagement in verses 12 through 13? It's obvious that Boaz had fallen very quickly in love with young Ruth, and it was clear that he wanted to marry her. Even Naomi knew that in verse 18. He's not going to rest until he has this settled. Boaz was going to work as quickly as possible to gain Ruth's hand in marriage, but he was going to do it the right way. He honored Ruth's purity and he honored the cultural obligations that he had in regard to this marriage. Let me explain what I mean. You may remember from last week that we spoke about the custom of, quote, close relatives or redeemers, as they're called here in this chapter. According to Deuteronomy 25, when a man died childless, one of his brothers was to take the widow into his home and was to marry her and provide security for her, which was impossible for her as a single woman. And he was to raise up children for his deceased brother. That was the the law in Israel, according to Deuteronomy 25. And according to the general custom in Israel, if a man died childless and had no brothers to marry or care for his widow, as was the case when Ruth's husband died, the responsibility then fell to the next closest relative, an uncle or a cousin and so on. And then it fell to the next closest one and the next closest one and so on. That was simply the proper way of doing things in their culture. Just like in our culture, it's proper for a young man to go to the girl's father and ask her for permission to ask, ask him for permission to ask her for her hand in marriage. That's the way they did things. That was the right way to do it. And that's important to remember when we read Ruth chapter 3. 
because Boaz, we see very obviously, wanted to marry Ruth for reasons far beyond mere social obligation. She was an excellent woman. She was a believer. She had already gained a reputation for the kindness she'd shown to her mother-in-law. And now he had realized on the threshing floor that she was a chaste and honorable woman as well. And who wouldn't want to marry a girl like that? But Boaz had a problem, didn't he? According to the rules of society, Boaz was not next in line to marry Ruth. There was another uncle or cousin or some close relative, verse 12, who was a closer match. So what's Boaz to do? When we get to chapter 4, it appears that the man who is ahead of Boaz in the family line was completely unaware of Naomi and Ruth's arrival back in Bethlehem and thus unaware that Ruth was eligible. Therefore, how easy would it have been for Boaz simply to have kept this information hidden in his hip pocket, to have married this young woman with whom he was smitten and to have gotten what he wanted through less than above board means? would have been very easy, wouldn't it? He didn't have to go through the system. Nobody even knew that there was another closer relative, apparently, and the closer relative himself didn't know. And yet Boaz did what was right in verses 12 and 13. Even in the heat of the moment, he did what was right. In the heat of the moment, when he was underneath the moonlight sky, looking down into Ruth's eyes, smelling her perfume, hearing her express her desire for him, even then he had enough self-control and enough integrity to think not just about what would feel good, but what would be good. Not just about what would feel right, but what would be right in that situation. Boaz must have known that God honors those who honor him, and he must have believed it. He waited and did things the right way. He trusted God. Do you? Are you able to do what's right even when no one is watching you? Even when the temptation runs high, even when the blood is pumping and your heart is pounding and everything inside you says you should just go for it? Are you able to do what's right even then? This has implications, see, not only for sexual fidelity. Obviously, it has implications there, but it has implications for fidelity in business. It has implications for walking away on raunchy and racist jokes. It has implications for excusing yourself from gossip sessions, for integrity on your tax returns for working the full amount of hours for which you're being paid, and so on. Are you trusting God enough to do what's right even when the rest of the world says, just go for it? There's so many areas in which men and women in this world find it all too easy to cut corners. But the churches ought to be filled with Ruth's and with Boaz's. So simply ask you again to think honestly about your life. In the areas where you are tempted to fudge the numbers or to cut some corners or to take advantage of the fact that no one is watching or to live out the mantra, if it feels good, do it. Or to excuse yourself because everyone else is doing it too. Are you able, even then, to do things the right way?
I've prayed earnestly this week that God would show each of us very specifically how this message about integrity and honesty and purity and honoring God, even when no one's looking, applies specifically to each one of our individual souls. That God would show you some specific ways that you need to take this home with you. So what is it for you? And will you cry out to God for help in the midst of temptation and for forgiveness for where you've already fallen? And speaking of forgiveness, there's one last aspect of Ruth chapter 3 that we've yet to consider closely. And that is this whole custom of being redeemed, verse 13, or chapter 4, verse 14, having a redeemer. That's an important word in this chapter, and we haven't considered it yet, so let's do that now. It's no accident that the Hebrew word that is sometimes in this book translated close relative is also sometimes in this book translated redeem or redeemer. And it's no accident that it's often translated that way in the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, it's no accident that God set in motion this whole plan of redemption for widows in the first place. That God planned a way for someone to purchase them back out of the poverty that they might live in otherwise by means of marriage. For God to plan a way for them to be redeemed out of this difficult situation. It's no accident that God had a plan for how families would go about redeeming widows out of destitution. And yes, the plan of brothers or cousins caring for or redeeming the family's widows had a functional and immediate purpose, didn't it? Women were not left destitute and the deceased inheritance was not dissolved. There is another purpose. Remember that Jesus said in Luke 24 that all the Old Testament points forward to himself. And therefore, be reminded that God made arrangements in Deuteronomy chapter 25 for widows to have a redeemer. Yes, so that women like Ruth would be helped, but also so that men and women like you and I would be helped as well. The whole Old Testament custom of redeeming the destitute was put in place partially as a portrait of the gospel of Jesus. Because we are all, aren't we, in the midst of a self-inflicted destitution. Our sins, as we said a week ago, have left us as spiritual widows, spiritual orphans, spiritual outsiders with no way to rescue ourselves. And therefore, we desperately need someone to get us out of our predicament. We desperately need someone to take us in, someone to do for us what a close relative would do for a widow in the Old Testament. We need someone who will buy us out of the mess in which we find ourselves. And we need, ultimately, don't we, a Redeemer. And wonder of wonders, we find that God has orchestrated a plan for us just the same as he did for women like Ruth. The prophet Isaiah, using the very same Hebrew word that's used to describe Boaz in the book of Ruth, prophesies to us that a Redeemer will come to Zion. Isaiah 59.20 A Redeemer will show up in Jerusalem. And when we fast forward to the New Testament, we find that he has. Jesus, we're told in Titus 2.14, arrived in Jerusalem and gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.7 that we have redemption 
through his blood. Jesus has done for us what Boaz was to do for Ruth. Jesus is our close relative. Jesus is our redeemer. And so we said last week that the story of Ruth's redemption is included in the Old Testament to prepare us for Jesus, our greater Boaz. And we say this morning that the entire Deuteronomy 25 custom of redeeming childless widows was also written into the Old Testament law to prepare us for Jesus. In the Old Testament, God provided redeemers with a lowercase r to give people a taste for and a longing for and an expectation of a redeemer with a capital R who would come and rescue them in a far more decisive way. God wrote that law for widows in Deuteronomy 25 with Jesus in mind. The Bible really is all about him. And after the challenges we've been given this morning in the areas of integrity and honesty and waiting on the Lord, isn't it good to know that we have a Redeemer? If your conscience is softened at all, I'm certain that you've been convicted this morning of all sorts of ways in which in your life you've run ahead of God or been carried away by the heat of the moment or been dishonest or unfaithful or done things in your way or the world's way instead of doing them in God's way. And each of us should feel bad for those failures. But isn't it good to know that there's a Redeemer? Someone who has given Himself to ensure that the messes that we have created for ourselves can be remedied? That our sins can be forgiven? That our lives can be restored? That's the best news in the world. So will you leave today like Ruth? and glory in your Redeemer.